0: There are a lot of farmers that care a lot about stewardship to their lands. They are the primary stewards to most of the lands and they want to do something. But if you could b- build the awareness and incentives to make them you know, go through the Haskell of, of taking some of these actions, that, that would certainly help uh, in fertilizer management. Welcome to CropTastic, the Interplant Podcast, where your hosts, Shelly Aronoff, Marta Bouliak, and Sean Yokomizo explore the global future of agriculture and food.
1: Welcome to our episode of CropTastic by Interplant. Today's guest is Nick Koshnik, another one of uh, my mentors for um, a few years now. And Nick and I met through one of the Stanford Business School events as well. He's an alum of Stanford um has a lot of experience in ACTEC, one of the first people that immediately told me, of course, plants are the sensors and helped me identify a lot of really valuable technologies. Um, Nick, you have, I would say you're probably one of the first act tech founders that ever were. Now it's kind of a booming space, but uh, in two thousand and nine, it wasn't as much. So maybe you can start by just sharing your experience. What made you go into the space? How was it back then? And uh, what you know, what what was the story of Solum Tech?
0: Yeah. Well, thank thank you so much for having me here today. Um, always uh, delight to to interact and and support you um, and the the amazing team at Interplant. It's kind of funny saying that I'm like in some ways I, I laugh saying I'm one of the first egg tech founders uh, because. Uh, you know, farmers farming's been around for quite a while, and farmers are amazingly, amazingly, ingenuitive and capable. They're great at building things. They're they're independent business people, and so uh, farmers are always sort of inventing things. But right. In the, I guess you're
1: one of the Silicon Valley crop.
0: That's right. In yeah, <laughs> but the other part of that is that right in Silicon Valley, uh, in in 2008, 2009. Um, we were working on this idea and pitching it to uh, people up and down Sand Hill Road. And they were like, you know, pulling in their partners to say, like, I've never heard of like someone pitch agriculture as a place where technology could be used more, uh, which is just kind of crazy now because you think of ag tech as being a big, like a sector of investing and there's so much investment has gone on so many opportunities, but there it wasn't really viewed that way. In 2008, there had been a little bit of investment around GPS technology, um, which was basically like the sort of satellite investors and realizing that you know you could have a tractor drive a very straight line. But a lot of the investment had come up or sort of the the uh, creation had come up from various places uh, in in farm country. Uh, and what they'd done is they created, Not only could you guide your tractor with GPS, but you could record where all your data points were. And so you could input a data file and apply fertilizer or pesticide or anything else based on this map. And you can record which areas of your farm are doing well or not well. Uh, And so it was a place where where data was being used, uh, and yet in 2008, it was... Uh, that year, the next year when like the iPhone launched uh, and clearly like the iPad hadn't come out yet, um, clearly the, the use of the data was going to change dramatically. And so I feel fortunate that I, you know, my co-founders and I sort of picked an area that was like a big wave coming, like the, the way people were going to use data was was going to change. And, and we could see that as being obvious and we're uh, sort of excited to play in the space.
1: And then, uh, would you share a little bit about Solon?
0: Yeah. Um, so we were three Stanford physicists that wanted to have impact outside of a- academia. Two of us grew in grew up in western Minnesota, and we weren't farmers, but we like knew a lot of farmers or had relatives that farmed, and so we were a, we knew the environment, and we knew that fields have tremendous... First of all, fields are enormous. You can drive for hours and hours and hours and all you'll see is fields. And you could see even in one, if it's a half mile by half mile, there's tremendous variability in that field to the point that it doesn't even look like the same, the same field at all. And yet farmers were applying the same amount of everything to every acre, and they just didn't know why. I mean, they didn't know what else would be better. And they were aware of that too, because they could see it in their yield data and uh, the other costs that there was a lot of variability. So we were aware of that, and then also aware of, particularly around the the nitrogen challenge or the fertilizer challenge, uh, which um, we'd read a report, and the people in the environmental science would, you know, were uh, that were kind of in our friend circles were saying, hey, this is as big as global warming. The fact that we're tripling the amount of available nitrogen on the on earth and phosphorus um, that's causing tremendous change and uh, killing large portions of the gulf of mexico making water undrinkable in rural areas and really having tremendous changes on ecosystem which which changes the whole um you know the whole bio bio cycle and so we looked at that and said like farmers are going to use data if they knew what data data could help them apply the right fertilizer. That's like a third of their, or maybe a third of their input costs, a huge part of their uh, comparable at that time to their um, profits. Um, So of course, they're going to want to save money where they're overspending. And uh, if they're underspending, you know, they could get more yield and it would be used. So just not knowing how much to apply was really affecting their economic outcome. Uh, And it had this benefit to the world too, which was non-data driven, non-smart use of particular fertilizers has a a big negative uh, environmental uh, cost. So we set out to say, well, we're going to build a data company, but you need the right kind of data. And as physicists, we looked at that and said, well, it seems like the, the fertility part is in the soil. And so built soil sensors, something you could build, you could carry along in a trailer Um, to the side of the field. We hope to make it eventually on the tractors and just sort of built a bunch of tools in that uh, soil sensing place and a a data platform on top of it. Along that path, we realized that we could build, that some stuff for farmers was not only related to their soil data, um, and that that soil data stuff was pretty rich. Um, And so we actually ended up growing the company, raising more money, building operations in the Midwest, And then we ended up splitting the company and the soil measurement part uh, we sold to uh, the Climate Corporation, which was owned by Monsanto at the time. Now it's Bayer, which is a major leading platform for managing farming farming data right now. And the other part that was doing more operational financial management spun off and became this new company called Granular, which is the uh, other was acquired by Dow DuPont. Now Corteva, which is the other major data platform for farmers, and so it's kind of cool at, at start, starting that place in that big wave. We ended up building part of both of the big uh, data, probably both of the two biggest data platforms for farmers right now.
1: Were there other companies working on soil sensors at the time? Because now obviously there's a lot, but again we're talking what 13 years ago.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, I think there were people working on soil sensors, but I mean, like I said, farmers are always inventing. Right. And reinventing. Not at the same
1: level, not the connectivity, right. the devices yeah, think, were there, but
0: yeah, it takes, and it takes uh, investment to to do some, you know, we, we brought in a totally different optical approach. Um, and you sort of, you have this melting plot where you have like someone who's worked on, you know, microchips, literally silicon in Silicon Valley, um, and other people that have worked on the data side and some chemists and some, you know, biologists. And then, you know, you end up getting different results from that um, that can be very uh, disruptive. What's cool is even as we got acquired, I ended up leading the measurement technology for um, sort of the measurement research for climate. So I got to look at all the other approaches to, uh, you know, data collection in the field.
1: You know, Nick, what's, what's interesting to me over time, because we've known each other now over two years yeah. um, which in startup world is forever uh, it feels like <laughs> um and i remember when we we're talking about what can the plants detect right because we can look at nutrients and we can look at pathogens as long as it's a stress we can look for it and you told me focus on pathogens there is an issue with monetizing on any kind of nutrient improvements and now that we're developing our product and we're really getting closer to the farmers and the seed companies, uh, you were very right. The main focuses are always pathogens. Uh, Pathogens is a real pain because they can see the damage, whereas nutrients is quote unquote resolved because there's no losses in the field, right? Um, And then at some point I saw the Medium article that you wrote about kind of the nitrogen management incentive issues and in the state of the industry. So I think it'd be great if you can share a little bit of your opinion about this, because I think you're very right. And I think a lot of people hope that the industry will go a different direction, but hope is not enough, right?
0: Right, yeah. Um, I, was in, I was in a bar once with uh, my my VFU marketing. It was in Iowa somewhere. And there was this farmer that was kind of, uh, what do they say, like dumb as a fox? He was incredibly sharp, but pretending to be dumb. And he said, well, nitrogen, no one cares about that, but the government and, you know, the EPA and, and the guy who was with me said, well, you know, the plants care about it. (laughs) And so I I think it isn't an issue as long as you have enough to get your yield and you're not wasting too much money. And what's happened a little bit in recent years is the uh, fracking and the availability of natural gas. We basically create. Uh, nitrogen fertilizer uh, burning natural gas and uh, through the Haber Bosch process through giant city sized factories um, chemical factories uh, and that uses that's a huge gl- greenhouse gas polluter um, and it's also uses a like a s- several percent of the world's energy just to create this nitrogen which the nitrogen is in itself is a sort of environmental problem so uh, you have to bring like get the incentives around. Uh, if that has a cost or not, um, sometimes it does have a, like I said, it can, it, a substantial portion of your budget can go to fertilizer. Uh, and that's, you know, not for strawberries, but for, uh, crops like corn and ones that make less per acre. And so there is an incentive that on that. Uh, but for the most part, you know, if, if farmers are just trying to do more acres, they can apply. What they hope is enough, but not like way too much to the point they're losing money. And I think we see we do see environmental pushback on that because you have big changes um, in some of these places. Where I mean, the reality is most of us don't farm anymore. Um, it's not like 1900 where it was more than half of the population. Um, and there are some, envi- you know, if you have to shut down the city water system, that actually affects a lot of people. So there's there is some environmental push. I was just re- just uh, uh, assisting with a panel um, of uh, some government research funding, and if you have puddles that happen in your fields, those puddles basically that will make all the nitrogen in the ground go up into the air, and uh, that's a huge waste of your fertilizer money because you're you're not getting any benefit from it. Uh, it's also really bad for the environment to the point that. Uh, if, the, if t- someone were gonna pay a carbon credit for that, they could pay back your entire fertilizer budget just for you to protect against those uh, ponding areas. So there are ways we can create these and get these incentives better aligned, but they're not inherently better aligned. line uh, because you know, if you have poor root structure and your crop falls down in the wind, as a farmer, you're very aware of that. And if you have not enough fertilizer, and lose a little yield or a little too much fertilizer, you're probably not aware of that all at all. It's in, it's invisible. And so, there are a lot of farmers that care a lot um, about stewardship to their lands. They are the primary stewards to most of the lands, and they want to do something. But if you could b- build the awareness and incentives to make them, you know, go through the Haskell of of taking some of these actions, that that would certainly help uh, in fertilizer management.
1: I agree with you. It's I always see it as. The farmers are the stewards of the land. It's the question of the tools that are offered to them. We right. have to offer them better tools. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. And uh, and with pathogens, it's just more there in front because it hasn't been sol- solved yet, which is kind right. of the issue.
0: Well, there's a timeliness with passage- pathogens as well. I actually really br- appreciate you bringing up the this topic uh, because it's not it's not emphasized enough uh, unless you, you know, happen to have a, you know, environmental science friend to, to the level that a lot of us buy organic food because it's healthy for the environment. Um, and I've talked to the CEO of a very large organic name brand, and I asked what they're doing for the fertilizer challenge. And he said, well, we've actually solved that. And I was like, great. How? And he said, well, we've brought all the rights to this, um, this large dairy operation and we, can apply three times as much fertilizer as we used to. And I was like, well, that solves the, <laughs> you know, it's, it's technically organic, but you're still it not aware environmental? of the environmental consequence yeah. that that can cause. Um, and so like just awareness is, is a big, big step.
1: So what do you, uh, I know this is a big question, but what do you think is the solution?
0: In addition to awareness, uh, because there are these places where people could get paid um, or get incentivized to do um, these practices that have been enabled by technology. I I also think like better data is a huge part of the problem. It will help with awareness, making it visible. I've been to, you know, dozens of field days where you set up and show farmers stuff. I've I've talked with, you know, environmental um, groups um, at, at the at the national level and if you just have if they have the data to show where these deficiencies are or these over applications are everyone's aligned everyone wants to solve that Um, and i think better data will also create just more compelling economic reasons to to answer these problems because the problems are out there if you don't have the right data it's it's harder to make that clear to all you know all the people that are are involved
1: yeah. One of the things that I always was amazed by is how anecdotal the data in agriculture is because everything is done. If you really coordinate trials, you're doing that on a tiny plot. But when you think about the entire scale of all the land that we farm, there could be so much more done, but there's just so much noise and so little valuable data that the farmers can put to use.
0: Yeah. I, I think I'm an optimist. Um, I think it's changing. I, we'd like to see it change faster. I mean. It used to be, when I when we started Solum, the standard of data was people would, you know, their granimates would go do something and they would print it out and put it into a binder. And like every single farmer we'd talk to would be like, can you do something with all these paper binders of data that I have? <laughs> and and so you help them, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. And we're, I mean, we're far better off. <laughs> Right now, they have their iPad yeah. or their phone, and they're like they know which fields are workable that day, and they can see you know multiple years of data and imagery. I think has played a big part in that because uh, imagery uh, you can have images from past years. Um, that's from many data sources are stored up. You, you can re- retrieve it afterwards, uh, and it's so scalable. So I think it's and it's ver- it's really engaging to see your your uh, field spatially.
1: This actually is a very perfect segue to this. When we met, I think you immediately, when I, when I was talking to you about using the plants as the sensors themselves, that resonated with you very rapidly. And I think you immediately got the idea. Um, and it seems like something that you thought about before. And this has happened to me many times before as well. But can you talk a little bit about that? Like, When, was, when did that become this revelation? And Why are the plants the best uh, sensors?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, um, I'm working on a new startup now that involves people more than plants. Uh, I still care about plants a lot (laughs) and the environment. Um, But when we met, your approach and some of the, you know, the biology and biotechnology that's, you know, just become possible, connected with these plants as the sensors um, really inspired me. And, you know, it was one of those it's just a coffee meeting, but it got me thinking, and we connected back again. And it was really clear that you know the wheels were turning because I, I think there's something possible here um, that could really affect agriculture. Um, so I've I've built soil sensors in in the lab, uh, at the side of the field, on the go, in collaboration with other companies. We even acquired a soil sensor. That lives in the ground permanently um, and did R&D around that. Um, So I've been looking at the space for quite a while. And I mean, basically you come back to, for agriculture, you want to measure the soil to the extent that it matters to the plant. And so if you're thinking about the perfect soil sensor, you really want it to be as plant-like as possible. And the other things you need, uh, so for instance, uh, the depth of the sensor should be really the relevant depth um, for the crop you're growing at that time, uh, which plant roots are at the relevant depth for the plant at the time. <laughs> um, you need it with really high spatial variability uh, or at least that, you know, the option to extend there. And that's because these feed, fields vary, you know, sort of an I remember I was on a big stage in, in uh, Tremont, Illinois, Uh, Talking about that, you know, the farmers are just sort of nodding along, and you need it at the right time. And plants are out there; um, they can live in all those components. It's hard to get. It's it's easy to get some data on all that, but it's hard to get really good data in all those those areas. And so, if you don't have that right data, you end up modeling what the plant is physically doing at each time and mashing together different statistical sources, but uh, I believe in. I, I'm a big believer in in lidar in the automotive space. Like this is that in that case, there's just more better data there. And this the the plant centers sensors is just better data, and uh, and I think it could give us a lot of what's going on, both for fertility, um, but for you know disease, uh, pest and disease, uh, water stresses, and and other factors as well.
1: I really like the way you put that. Where it is about the relationship between the soils and the plant, the soil and the plant, but um, the focus is the plant, right? What we, I always say this to people that at the end of the day, everything is about the seed. It's all about protecting the seed, nurturing the seed. Um, but I've never heard you uh, talk about those different elements of why why it makes sense that way. Yeah. So one more anecdote, I guess, before we uh, wrap up for today. But I, when I when I started my journey, it was very clear that uh, we have to find a way to see our signals from space. And Nick was the person that showed me the technology that made that feasible. So Nick, uh, just to, for remembering those old days and going to Joe Berry's lab in Stanford and uh, finding Ari Cornfield for us, you've been really, really instrumental in the success of Interplan. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm really happy about the relationship over the years.
0: It's been fantastic both ways. I've, I've, I've really loved... Uh, um... Yeah, assisting you and the great team.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, if it's uh, it can really create that that right data um, available everywhere. So it's 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 just been re- really fun to, you know, everyone on the team, all that different aspects to interact with them and see you know these different skill sets coming together to make this thing that has never been possible, really uh, quite possible for for agriculture. I, I, my. My relative, who's uh, in the farming space, I know is is loving the the demo he's got from you, and um, we're uh, it's exciting to see. You know, we're, we're it recording
1: out. with him as well. Carl is gonna be on this podcast in a couple.
0: Fantastic! Weeks. Yeah, he said he has <laughs> he has a glowing tomato plant or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's a uh, there's so many uh, so many puns you can make, but it's 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 fun to see it grow. And that's our show for this episode. Thank you again to Nick Koshnick from Ponder for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or our Twitter account at inner underscore plant or, of course, in the comments section. Thanks for listening.